Welcome to the Spacecraft Podcast, presented by Dan Moscrop and brought to you by them.co.uk, who provides specialist graphic design support for commercial architects, developers and interior designers. Hey, I'm joined today by Chris Crawford, uh, who is the Associate and Regional Media Industry Expert for Gensler. I managed to say it in one, which is not too bad. Well done. Uh, <laughs> Chris, uh, we met a little while ago when we started working together, well, separately, but on the same project of uh, the Stephen Lawrence Charitable Trust, mm-hmm. uh, which is a wonderful project um, and massively transformational to their organisation. I was absolutely astounded to discover that everybody had worked on that was pretty much done it pro bono. Do you want to talk a bit about the project? Yeah, sure. I think it was a a really exciting project for us. We had uh, worked with the Stephen Lawrence Charitable Trust in various different capacities. Heather Storey from um, our HR department is actually on their architectural advisory board. And with that, we're working with them to provide work experience placements for for their alumni or students that are going through their programs at the moment. And we found out that they actually wanted to provide a co-working offering for some of their alumni within the building so we we went and took a tour around uh, just to see what room we thought kind of best suited um, that sort of intervention and we started having the conversations about like what are the types of spaces that are really going to attract prospective tenants um, and we think it goes a little bit beyond just simply converting one room to have a few desks and maybe like a, a small tea point or you know offering of coffee um, we thought it had to be something slightly more holistic Uh, So when we were walking through the building, we identified several different areas that we thought could really work for that purpose. And then when they were asked, when they actually turned around and asked us and said, so, you know, which room do you want? It's actually, we want them all. You know, I think we can actually do something a whole lot bigger than perhaps we had any aspirations for, but still keep in mind the idea that um, the spaces can be as multi-purpose as possible to bring in as much revenue for the charity as possible. It massively transformed the business. I think... um it was sort of, when we first sort of looked at it back in the day, you know, it was a beautiful structure. It was sort of a, a more of a memorial to, to Stephen, but now you've sort of turned it into something more of a, a legacy for Stephen. Yeah, definitely. I think um, in for all the conversations that we've had with the, the trust, it became really apparent that one of the key things that they really wanted to focus on were the positive aspects of the things that they've done since Stephen's death and look at as you say, more of the legacy and uh, the positive impacts that they've had on people's lives. Um, and through that, there was a, a real sense to focus on this sense of connectivity, uh, celebration of life, positivity and vibrancy. And we really try to stay true to that in all the interventions, applications of, of colour, of um, new greenery within the space, bringing in more daylight throughout the extent of the building. We thought it was really important to, to celebrate a lot of the existing features of the building and not try to completely um, obscure them or change them. Um, but one of the things we wanted to really do was increase visibility through. And with that, a person that comes into the building then gets a much better sense of the scale in which, you know, of the building in which they're standing, um, but also all the different activities that are going on in the in the space. So, you, you know, we wanted to get key sight lines into some of the, the meeting rooms, key sight lines into the studio space where, you know, you'll see people actually collaborating, like laying out 
drawings and and that kind of thing it was kind of celebrating that human activity and people are activating the space it certainly feels really vibrant in there there's a beautiful bright orange color i'll put some pictures on the blog later and and then you, you sort of dissected the building so that there's a lot a, a swathe of light that starts to come in yeah definitely um when we were looking at some of the spaces within the building we th- we felt that the atrium itself as you walk in felt like this this large uh, void and within that we wanted to to fill that with something and this was this orange volume that we were referring to and what it does is actually connects the front of the building to the back of the building and across all the different levels so it's pulling upon the idea of uh, connectivity vibrancy and it just really draws your eye through the building one thing that's quite exciting about it is orange was actually Stephen's favourite colour. We were we were pulling upon that idea and that celebration of his legacy and some of the positive aspects of his life. Um, but it was also looking at some of the existing colours in the building where on the ground floor there was a, a deep red colour um, and through to on the top floor there was a, a yellow colour. And it was almost like recognizing some of those um, existing attributes and trying to find the way that those two colors merged and connected all of those floors that's lovely um and the the spaces having been there a few times now it's you can see that it, the, the designs actually affected the building itself it's now really sort of bringing it to life there's uh, there's lots of different areas within the building so you've got a sort of a, a collaboration or sort of event space up the top and then you've got the the meeting rooms downstairs but I can imagine that, you know, it's it's a building from a while ago. Uh, I believe that there's been complications on the way. So literally the digital drawings didn't even exist in some cases. We had a a little bit of a challenge with, um, yeah, the available documentation for the building. So we were working with scanned PDFs. We took um, certain site measurements to to validate the the scale of the drawing, redrew over those in AutoCAD. And then there was a a real um, focus on, Again, just validating that when we were on site with the the contractor who was BW Interiors, so. and, and both, I mean, Gensler and BW. I know I've spoken to to both parties. It, it turned into quite a big job for both of you. <laughs> yeah, definitely. There was, uh, as I said, when we we started out, we we knew that we could take sort of the aspirations for the project a, a lot further than perhaps it, it started off. Um, and we got to the point where we had developed the scheme throughout the, the whole building uh, and presented it to the trust and to Stephen's family. And it was a really moving moment where you could see all of the, the emotion and how much it meant to everybody that had been involved in the charity, some of the alumni members that have gone through the programme. It was a real magical moment. And fortunately for us, um, someone from BW was actually there in that presentation. I think they could immediately see the impact that it would have and the the difference that it would make to not just those people in the room, but actually for generations to come. And that was incredibly moving. And when we spoke to BW following that, they were like, yeah, 100% we're in. Like, we're going to make it happen. Because there was one point where we're like, yeah, we designed it. Like, right, now we've actually got to make it happen. Like, that's the challenge. So. There's lots of lovely little touches in there. I love the little graphics you've put on the manifestation. It's almost like a, almost like a cartoon definition of what a mirror might look like, just the little lines on it and little details like that right the way through. Yeah, well, actually, we know that the target demographic for the workspace is people in the creative industry in general, but with a particular focus on the architectural um, and the built environment profession. Um, and that's because Stephen was an aspiring architect um, before he passed away. 
But what we then started to do is develop an architectural language throughout all of the signage, um, environmental graphics and wayfinding. So when you see the, the, gla- the manifestation on the glazing, what that actually is, is the architectural signage when you see an elevation to denote that that's glazing. When you looked at the concrete screed um, on the staircases, we then had in graphics, we had overlaid the, the concrete pattern that you would see in an architectural drawing. And then other things like the reflected ceiling plan, we then actually had that on the floor below. So any signs that you saw on the floor, they related directly to the lighting, the you know any other sort of ceiling um, devices that were there that's really smart i mean i think there is a sort of common misconception that the stephen lawrence charitable trust is, is sort of in some way fighting knife crime but the reality is that they really believe in trying to get people into the jobs they deserve to get into uh, whether it be architecture the creative industries uh, media which is a, a, an incredible uh, incredible charity so I, I realised that um, BW were involved, but I think it was particularly Martin Williams who uh, who was the guy that literally pulled in every favour under the sun to make it happen. Yeah, definitely. So when we before we had approached uh, BW, we had got um, lots of furniture manufacturers and suppliers of floor finishes, paint, etc. on board. But there were a load of trades that um, we were really reliant upon BW to source, and the whole team at BW did a really great job of of filling all of those different trade packages and making sure that we've got all the supply chain on board before we started on site but I think in the way that the the project was procured and the the way in which it was designed I guess there was a bit of scope creep in the sense that when we got on site we'd agreed what things that we were going to do and what things we weren't going to do what was in scope and what wasn't it became apparent that there were certain areas that we couldn't just simply leave as they were when they were in such close proximity to the the spaces that we were actually completing work uh, we ended up bringing those into into our scope and it was actually really key of martin to then as you say call in every favor that he had left he's definitely got no favors left after this project <laughs> but um simple things like people that he hadn't spoken to in a little while that used to work with a few years ago through to his partner who then um, at any time we had an event where Stephen's family would come in to visit site she would actually provide all of the the catering free of charge you know so I think what's really great about the whole project is everybody really brought into the story Mm. and knew that it went beyond just simply delivering the first thing that you had agreed to so we had certain people that were just like yeah is that is that all you want you know like is there anything else we can do and i think it was it was just a testament to the trust and actually what they're achieving and how everybody bought into that yeah it really is a great charity so is that quite a common thing for Gensler to take part in? So is this like a corporate responsibility drive within the organisation? or? Yeah, with CSR, we don't have kind of strict guidelines. We, we do various different things from food drives for local food banks through to reading to local primary schools and, and doing those kind of reading groups through to these pro bono projects where there isn't a, a quota or anything that we fill. But I think when we feel that there is a, a cause or an organisation that that 
really compels us to try and help them in in some way we definitely see what we can do to to help them in in whatever capacity we can uh, so the Stephen Lawrence Charitable Trust was one example um, and another example which was completed about three and a half years ago now were for the Tower Hamlets Food Bank so we had actually started uh, what the relationship with Tower Hamlets Food Bank by doing the the food drives that I'd mentioned um, and then we discovered that they had been donated an additional warehouse unit above the warehouse in which they stored all their food donations and uh, the aspiration behind that was actually to create their their head office um, and a place that acted almost like a training center so that people that were going through hard times that needed to rely on the Tower Hamlets food bank uh, instead of simply providing food and perhaps uh, tackling the symptom there was the the view to actually try and bring people back into employment um, and try and actually tackle the the cause I think that was a really uh, compelling story for us to to get involved in uh, it was the first time we'd done uh, this specific team had done a project like that and we started off um not really sure you know like what we could achieve we knew that we could provide all the design for free but whether or not we could procure it we were definitely relying on our network of suppliers manufacturers and the the big one that we relied on was the the managing contractor to kind of oversee site and actually um get it all implemented and built um and in that in that project we worked with od interiors it sort of feels to me that, that I mean, from a, a sort of a layman's point of view, that there's a much more, um, much more strategic thinking in how the design is going to impact the outcome in, in, in the work that you're doing. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's not even just in these uh, pro bono projects. It's in anything we do. We we really try to understand the, the business that we work with, um, try to understand what their workflows are, what their processes are, and then also introduce our experience of various different companies that we've worked with to, to maybe challenge their view and really impact people's lives. People are in the workplace. I don't know what the actual figure is. Maybe one third of the 24 hours of their day, maybe even like 70 percent of their their waking life so to to make a workplace that really makes people feel empowered makes people feel refreshed gives them the types of choices that they're looking for in their work day uh, really has the difference to to affect people's experience on a day-to-day basis how could somebody say a workplace director that was getting involved with Gensler what what sort of things do you want them to start thinking about to, to try and I'm just thinking about somebody if, if they were coming to give you a brief what would you want to hear from them to allow you to, to make this difference? Well, we have a, a consulting studio as well that takes people through um, kind of more of a, a step-by-step process. But um, whether they're engaged or not, one thing that we do when we kick off a project is really try to understand them and we create what we call a visioning session. And what that does is it looks at quantitative data <laughs> and then qualitative data. So it looks at uh, the numeric brief, like what types of uh, spaces that they need, how many meters rooms how many people are they trying to accommodate uh, through to really trying to understand their brand and, and their vision for the space what the types of qualities and what's the ethos that they want to to communicate when people step through the door in, into their space and that's from a visitor's experience as well as an employee's experience so we take them through all that journey and and even when we're presented with a numeric brief we always sort of start to challenge that and interrogate it and question it a bit because that's the whole reason why they're employing somebody like us is to actually bring that sort of um, expertise and experience to the table to you know to add another dimension that they wouldn't have got had they gone somewhere else or tried to do it themselves and how do you sort of get that flavor of brand and culture from an organization 
we always do like our research from um you know simple things the first instance of going online trying to find out what what they're about i think one of the really interesting things is looking at their um careers page because it tells you actually a lot about all of those messages of like how they want to come across like what are the values that they try to embody in their day-to-day work life um and then it's through actual um, visits to a site actually observing how they work, what their processes are. And that visioning session is really key to see the leadership's vision, not just as where they are now, but actually where they see themselves and where they want to be. And then how we can create a workplace that facilitates that. I remember at a DNAD lecture, a really famous advertiser, he said, if you're doing a branding for a laundrette, go and sit in a fucking laundrette. And I thought that was really apt. Well, yeah, we try, try and sit with our clients for a couple of days at least to try and work them out. Mm-hmm. From what I'm, I'm pulling from this is that... Um, it almost feels like within Gensel it's quite entrepreneurial. I notice you've got quite a grand title, the uh, regional media industry expert, which is fantastic. Is Gensler design, d- divided up into groups of experts or how, how do you work? Yeah, I guess to the first part of that question, yeah, I would say Genzer is actually really surprisingly entrepreneurial. I'd obviously heard of them before I started working there and thought that they were, you know, a large corporate organisation. To be quite honest, I, I had this fear that you might start and be sort of a, a cog in the machine. Yeah, and, just absorbed in. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But um, I think one thing that really surprised me is that they, they really celebrate people and if somebody has the the drive and the ambition to do something it's uh, rather than greeted with obstacles it's always like okay how can we support you how can we connect you with the right people and that goes beyond just the people in the media office it goes to um, the entire organization where we have 6,000 employees worldwide over 49 offices so it's a huge network that you're sort of tapping into of expertise and then the second part of your question is yeah the regional media industry expert we don't tend to um, only have people working for a specific industry but what we like to do is develop that set of expertise so I will typically work on media projects as amongst others but the idea is that I have an understanding of their key considerations, their workflows, the way that their business works, so that then when we go to to work with them, there's not that that learning curve. There always is a learning curve, but it's perhaps not as steep to to somebody that's not worked with a media company before. And what we class as media actually spans from gaming to publishing to um, advertising through to TV and, and film production. So it's a really sort of broad umbrella. But what that means is that when we go to, to tender we, um, and, and pitch for, for projects, it, it's clear that we have that understanding and that expertise here. Um, but what it also means is that I have a regional counterpart across the globe um, in all the various different regions where we meet together on a regular basis to talk about what are the key trends, what are um, lessons learned from particular projects, or if there's a new client type that falls within that media umbrella, what can we glean from that if we're then to work with other similar companies in the future, um, as well as looking at um, particular projects and, and leveraging existing relationships. So w- what trends are you able to tell us about now that you've, you've been identifying? Well, within the, the media sector, we think that it's um, 
actually a, a really rapidly changing industry at the moment. There's this huge shift from um, things being much more like physical print to becoming much more digital. And with that, it requires a, a much more different workforce. It actually uh, requires different processes and um, different target talent that people are trying to attract. So previously, instead of saying, oh, yeah, our competitors are um, X, Y, and Z, now they're starting to talk about competing with some of the larger tech firms for that that kind of talent Um, and with that their workplace has to be completely different Um, so it's us sort of taking them through that transformational change as well and trying to design spaces that are much more flexible so that in the future when there's further change it's not then so much more expensive to start to adapt that workplace we also find the content production is becoming much more prevalent, not just in sort of closed black box studios, but actually throughout the entire office space. There's much more demand for rapid content creation. So simple things like open studios within the workplace, simple ways to sort of partition off certain spaces so that you can have camera shots looking at phone rooms that have been over-engineered so that you can actually start to do recordings in there. Um, And I think consumer behaviour and expectation means that they'll accept a slightly lower quality content production in order to get it first or to get it immediately rather than kind of higher value production that comes after the fact. So you've mentioned that you've got sort of mid-sized media agencies that are trying to to poach clients uh, sorry staff effectively from the larger i guess the googles of this world effectively so are they really putting an emphasis on workplace as something that's going to attract that staff yeah definitely so it it's there is an aesthetic to think about there are spaces uh, variety and choice of different space typologies within the workplace that encourages a different kind of behavior. If all you have to offer in an office is rows of workstations, it's actually nowhere near as compelling as the idea of people giving up ownership of a specific desk, but actually being able to utilize the whole building that they're working in through to the cafe, through to library spaces. Um, A lot of people place a lot of focus on collaboration and actually forget about the the need to focus and um, through your work day um, and if you can create offices that talk to all those different work modes throughout different points of the day then it's much more of a compelling offering and i guess that i mean media as a sector must be putting the bar pretty high so there must be a real race to the top at the moment in the sector, I would think, with regards to workplace. Yeah, definitely. Um, we, we find that we're working with people that have been in their offices for you know, maybe 10, 15 years at the moment, and they know they're definitely behind the, the curve in terms of what people expect of their workplace. So um, we definitely co-create with them to make sure that we are dramatically turning that around for them. Can you give us any examples of who you're working with at, at the moment? Yeah, so we just recently created uh, a large project uh, for Hearst UK, which is in Leicester Square. And that was a really interesting project because it wasn't at the, the higher end of the the budget that we might expect for a commercial office fit out. But they had really high aspirations and uh, we really took that as a creative challenge to see how we can be really um, creatively intelligent with what you know how we spend the money and what we spend it on so it's um, actually using materiality like bold punches of color to make really big impacts Mm. with with low associated costs you mentioned earlier cherry duck studio uh, when we were talking and 
I think the other names you came with were McCannwell Group and the Press Association. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but Cherry Duck Studio doesn't sound like a, an international huge brand. I would have thought that budget-wise, to be working with somebody like Gensler, that must be unlikely. We've actually just recently moved offices. We were in um, Aldgate and we've just um, moved near St Catherine's Dock in Wapping. And one of our key priorities when we moved there is rather than seem like a large corporation that sort of sits in isolation and doesn't sort of reach out to, to its neighbours, we then uh, started to, to look around Wapping and see, you know, get to know some of the other businesses who they're owned by. Cherry Duck Studios is a small family-owned business about a five minutes walk from our office and uh, they have some uh, post-production studios some editing suites and uh, large photography studios Um, and they'd recently acquired some residential space that they wanted to then actually turn back into commercial space and that was the idea of turning into a co-working space um, for people specifically within the media industry so the idea is that the clients that come to Cherry Duck Studios will be able to get um, from start to finish along the the content creation production line almost like treat that as a one-stop shop so that there could be makeup artists there there could be visual effects artists that work there um, as well as post-production editors but what was uh, really important for us is that we were actually challenging people's perceptions of the types of projects that that Gensler do and uh, you can see we mentioned the Stephen Lawrence Charitable Trust we mentioned Tower Hamlets Food Bank Cherry Duck Studios, as well as other media projects, we definitely know how to design to varying different budgets and no project is too small for us. We actually like to um, consider the whole spectrum and there are so many lessons that you can learn from larger scale projects and apply those to smaller scale and vice versa. But um, Cherry Duck Studios, as I say, was a family owned business. Um, It was only about seven and a half thousand square foot And we just really had to be creative with what we had. Um, So when we walked onto site, there were a load of scaffolding planks and scaffolding poles um, kind of like left in the building. And we actually started to utilize those to actually retreat them, use them as flooring, create pieces of joinery out of them. The, the workstations that we implemented were using the scaffolding poles that were there, as well as leveraging some of the furniture that they had in store from their, their warehouse that they used for the studio spaces. So it's about working with what you've got and being a bit more creative uh, to, to create something that's incredibly impactful. I was going to say, that must look very deliberate, yet very cost-effective. Yeah, and um, because of their location, the actual concept behind that project was looking at the, the docks and the sort of maritime trade that, mm. and the history of that area. So the, the timber was uh, quite key to the materiality of that concept, as well as actually what was there and, and true to the site, um, as well as uh, some of the features that you might see, which are like the, the ropes and the, the, the tarnished metals. Uh, you also mentioned the Press Association. I mean, uh, w- was that a similar project or what was that one like? That's actually a brand new project that we're working on. So we've been working, it's on the boards at the moment. We've been working with them for um, the last three weeks. Um, and it's, again, a very fast-paced program. So we're having to to pack a lot of the front-end consulting piece and formulating the brief of them very quickly um, to then create a concept and, and roll that out. But they've been a really great client in really communicating what their aspirations are for the future, what their pain points are for their current building 
and how that perhaps restricts the way in which they want to work. So this building is now a really great opportunity for us to, you know, actualize and, and, you know, facilitate the way that they want to work. It seems really exciting. I mean, just to hear that Gensler are just seems so fluid in their working. You sort of expect an organization of its scale to be good because of the rigid parameters in the way they work, which is what you experience with a lot of big organizations. So is there quite a lot of, you mentioned the regional counterparts, is there quite a lot of pollination of ideas from other sectors as well within the organization yeah definitely so there's the media counterparts across all the different regions that we have um, around the globe but then i also there are also various different industry experts um, within our office that focus on financial services professional services consumer goods um, and we get together on a, a regular basis to you know talk about what's going on in the different industries and we find that there are so many synergies uh, between certain Mm. industries and we sort of group those together to you know to generate thought leadership in that in that regard but in terms of the way in which we work we can definitely formulate really small nimble teams to work with some of these smaller projects but I think the power behind Genza is the fact that we are such a large organization that if the project needs to speed up or the project becomes much larger and we need to get a certain number of people onto the project we have the the scalability to do that but still you know that does work both ways as well so if there is a smaller scale project you don't have a cast of thousands at Gensler working on it you've got a key point of contact and a few people around them to you know to make it happen uh, thanks very much chris so just to wrap up i was just thinking um if there was anyone wanting to get into interior design like yourself would you what advice would you give them i would say well when i first started out studying I think there was a a whole lot to learn. Um, I'd actually had more of an interest in uh, the beginning in residential interior design and then was exposed uh, to commercial um, interior design and that looked at hospitality through to workplace. But I think there there is a a strategy and... um, more sort of intelligence behind it that I perhaps wasn't expecting when I first um, started out. And if you were to go from being a student to a professional into the world of work, I think just always be aware that there is so much that you don't know. I think just be open to the possibility that you may know so much and yet that's just a grain of sand, you know, on the, the coast of all the things that you don't know. And for me... When I started out, it was always um, keeping my mind open to that and really, you know, being ready to absorb anything that anybody has to teach me. I would also say that the thing that has worked so well for me is despite what your inhibitions say, when you feel like maybe you're not quite ready or, you know, you don't feel like you could quite say yes to it, is just say yes and be open to get the right kind of support network around you to make sure that you don't fail, but just don't let your own sort of inhibitions or, or self-doubt hold you back. Great advice, Chris. Thank you very much. found that really interesting. Thank you. You've been listening to the Spacecraft Podcast, presented by Dan Mosscrop, brought to you by them.co.uk, who provides specialist graphic design support for commercial architects, developers, and interior designers. We'll be back with another episode soon, so please subscribe and keep listening.